Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We all pray with me. Lord, you are holy and the creator of all things. We pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. We confess that we continually um, are a forgetful people. Lord, please forgive us for our sins and let your promises and plans fill our hearts and minds. Allow us to have a burning desire to go out and to share your will and your word um, and to come to have a knowledge of you. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen, y'all. Thank you. All right, so Acts chapter 2, we have been in Acts chapter 2 as we've been covering and uncovering, really what does it look like for a church, any church, to be devoted to the kinds of things that the New Testament church was devoted to. So this is our ninth week in this, ninth and final week, and what it looks like to be a devoted church in our daily devotions. We started, if you remember, let me just bring us back, right? We started, if you remember, as being a people that are devoted to the fellowship, and we, we kicked that off with our neighborhood groups. We then talked about what it looks like to uh, not just any sort of community, because you can find community in a lot of places, Candidly, You can find it at work, CrossFit box, all kinds of places, but what's the distinctive of Christian community, and that kind of community is a, a, a community that is forming unto Christ together. It's formational in community. We also talked about the other devotions of the apostles' teaching, if you'll remember. And the apostles were obsessed with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus from beginning to end. That's what they talk about all over the place. They're just absolutely obsessed with it in the gospel. We also talked about the reliability of the Bible, and the Bible nerds had their day, right? And we all were excited about all the stats and graphs, and it was great. I liked it. I don't know about you. So we talked about the reliability of the Bible. We then talked about being devoted to the breaking of the bread, which wasn't just the Lord's table, but ultimately living all of life in memorial, in remembrance of Jesus. We also talked about the devotion to the prayers, and then last week Chris preached on uh, being, what does it mean to be devoted to the prayers? It means you're going to have a life of risk. That's what ultimately it means, that when you are devoted to prayer, you're saying, I don't got this. I don't have the resources. I don't have the desire all the time. I need you as the vine to help supply everything I need as me as a branch. And you're just dependent on him in risk and dependence, of, of course. And so today, as we wrap up, we're going to really kind of recap a lot of what we talked about in August when we talked about neighborhoods, networks, and nations. You remember that, right? You've got all those sermons memorized. There was four of them, right? Yeah, yeah, no, you're living this out. It's good. It's easy. Uh, but I think what we'll go is go, we're only going to do one here on missional living because we just did four weeks of this a couple of months ago. But we are devoted then to missional living. And you are thinking to yourself, I have heard that a lot, and yet I'm not really still sure what exactly it means. Because candidly, I'll tell you, it's not explicit in Acts chapter 2. 
The other devotions, you can see, it actually says it. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. Why are we adding missional living of all things in here? Well, if you look and you keep reading, particularly at chapter, or excuse me, at verse 47, what does it say? But it says this, um, if I had it up in front of me, but let me go back. It says this, right? Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, we would like to say that we are devoted to multiplication, but as we kick this around, ultimately, it's God who is the one who multiplies. It's God is the one who, who adds to their number. He is the one that gives the growth, as uh, the letter of the Corinthians says. So we... We have a responsibility and a role in this, and God also has a joy and responsibility in this. His job is to multiply our efforts, and yet what is our effort? I think what we can find is that throughout the book of Acts particularly, uh, but also throughout the whole New Testament, God's people understood their identity. Now, we're obsessed with I'm a child of God these days. That's what's in our worship songs. We're less obsessed about I'm a witness, I'm a martyr for Jesus, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't heard that worship song yet. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore, you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses. You will be my martyrs. You will be the ones who lay down their lives for the sake of your neighbors in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the utter parts of the earth. You see, the New Testament, that church, they understood something that we have forgotten. They weren't just believers. They were witnesses. You see the difference? A believer, you could be a believer and not do much. At least in this day and age. That's not the way it was for them. If you were a believer, it meant your life. For us, we believe in Jesus like we believe in fairy tales. It doesn't really make much of a difference for us all that much. If we just say we believe. But if we're a follower, there's some action to that. If we're a witness, now there's some cost to that. You see it all throughout the book of Acts. How did this church multiply and grow? I'll just give you an outline real quick of how this group of 12, which actually went to 11 after Judas hanged himself, back to 12, all of a sudden multiplied greatly. And I am convinced it's because they lived out of their identity as witnesses, as missionaries, as heralders of the good news. They went from 12. Acts chapter 1 says in the upper room there were then 120 that's tenfold multiplication in just a three-year ministry. That's amazing. If I was leading a church plant, I'd be pretty excited. I apparently am the only one. But nonetheless, I'd be excited about that. In Acts chapter 2, after Peter's sermon, 3,000 people were added to the first church in Jerusalem. The first megachurch was right there in Jerusalem after Peter's sermon. They repented, and they come to know Jesus in a personal level. In Acts 2, 47, more were added to that. We just read that. In Acts 5, chapter 14, listen to these. I'm not, I don't even have them on the screen. Just listen to them. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, multitudes of both women and men, they're explicit to say. Luke. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Are you seeing the explosion that's happening because of these devotions and God's grace on his people? And yet, it did not spare them from persecution. The hero, really, one of the heroes of the book of Acts was named Saul. And he brought the first persecution, actually, against the church. Before he was Paul, he was known as Saul. 
And he has the first persecution. He starts going into the home, starts going into the temples, and he starts putting uh, Christians either in prison or to death. And in fact, it's recorded right there in Acts chapter 7 where Stephen is the first martyr. And in Acts chapter 9, the persecution breaks out. But what happens? See, God told them to go to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and they had not done that. They were just in Jerusalem, and they were multiplying, and they were multiplying, and they were multiplying. And God shook up Jerusalem, say, this isn't your safe place anymore. And he scattered them out to then Judea and Samaria and to the other parts of the earth. After the first persecution, the church spread out of Jerusalem and into Judea, into Galilee, Acts uh, 9.31 says. And each church multiplied. The church continues to grow until we get to Acts chapter 16, where it says, now multiple churches increased in numbers daily, daily. Yo, this is a few short years where all this is exploding. It's no wonder the Roman Empire goes from a place of killing Peter, killing Paul, to again, a couple of centuries later, adopting Christianity as its national religion. It's fascinating, the growth of the early church. Juxtapose that to our world. And right now, friends, in this book, you can go pick it up at Amazon or wherever you want. It's called The Great de-churching. Go read this book. If you have any interest in the statistic, re, statistical realities behind what we're experiencing right now, this is a great start for you. Because ultimately, they start their book by saying this, we are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. The largest and the fastest. 40%, excuse me, 40 million adults used to attend church, and now they attend less than one time a year. It's 16% of our entire population are de-churched. Now, I don't want to bore you, but I do want to give some handles and labels to this because I think it's helpful. Because ultimately, our current reality is not that of the early church, and yet the culture is very much similar. It's apathetic. It's polytheistic. It's trying to seek truth wherever they really can. They're, they're, they're anti-establishment. They weren't about the Jewish religion, right? There's something stirring in those days that I think is still stirring today. It's maybe a little bit more obvious with social media and global news. But our current reality is absolutely different with the growth of the church rather than the shrinking of the church. Here are five subgroups of the D-Church. I put them up on the screen with just a very... Very quick. I mean, these are chapters devoted to this. But just so you have an understanding, first is ex-evangelicals. I'm putting them first. They weren't first in here. The ex-evangelicals are the ones that you read blog posts about and you've heard podcasts over. These are the people that have left church. Zero percent of them are willing to return because they're hurt. The church hurt is real. The book calls them de-churched casualties. They used to be in the church, something happened, their views changed, their friends' views changed, sexuality war, political war, something happened, and they got hurt, and they're not coming back. They may have been raised in a Christian home, but they are not coming back to church. The next one is BIPOC, as they call it. That is black, indigenous, and people of color. Although it is a broader uh, category, uh, in general, the, the vast majority of this particular category is basically uh, a, a very um, successful young black male who, after youth group, quit church, got busy doing other things, usually su success, usually their business, 
Um, maybe there was a cultural thing there, but ultimately they quit coming to church because ultimately uh, they failed to find a, a church home as an adult. They struggled to fit in, and they filled their time with other activities, good activities like work and working out. That's the BIPOC. Third, mainstream evangelicals. They look a lot like the people in the church. A lot of those folks fell away during COVID and never came back. Interestingly, when it says that they look a lot like people like church, the statistics will tell you they affirm a lot of the basics of Christianity and their understanding of, of Christ and of the Bible and of church. Most of these folks, they think, are actually believers that just haven't come back yet. They de-churched ultimately because they moved. Who'd have thunk it? Just moving. It is a big deal when, when we move away. Because they moved and perhaps it could be because of COVID. They might be online somewhere. But no one really knows. And no one knows them. Mainline Protestants and Catholics. They have the lowest view of the Bible than any other group. You'll notice that it's Protestants and Catholics. So don't get caught up on one or the other. They simply found other priorities for their time and money. They just didn't fit in at some point. Are you seeing a theme? I see a theme. And I haven't gotten to the last one yet. I see a theme. You know what the theme is? Church didn't matter to them. It just became a place where either they got entertained with their friends, and ultimately that, that just wears away, and you just go find other entertainment, or just didn't mean much for their life or their friend's life. It wasn't meaningful in some way. It didn't make a difference for them. Now, here's the last group, and this is 52% of the unchurched. This is your neighbor. This is, could be you. You're just here on a good day. I don't know, but it's the cultural Christian. 52% of all the de-churched, they uh, ultimately are represented by an apathy to Jesus because most likely they never knew him. 99% of the cultural Christian denies Jesus' deity. 99%. And they only, only 22% of them believe the Bible is the literal word of God. Now, friends, when I'm on, a, on mission to the ball field and to where, I was going to say to work, I am, a, I am a little bit of a missionary at work as well, uh, but wherever I'm at, uh, uh, in the coffee shop or whatever, this is the person I find the most. It's the cultural Christian that says good things, but when you start, God bless you, when you start digging past everything, right, <laughs> that was funny, all right, if it's not a coffee cup, let's throw iPads, um, so, nonetheless, there is, there's a reality in all of this, right? i got to get back on track. Don't do it. Don't let me go there. Um, I was going back to cultural Christians. All right, 22% believe the Bible is literal. All right, here we go. The top two reasons why they quit church is because their friends quit, and it became inconvenient. Okay, that little thing right there is going to ruin later, but we're going to be all right. Because I think, ultimately, we got to have a reaction to that. We have a, re have a reaction to 52% of, of cultural, of our de-churched reality, our cultural Christians, and all of these folks were in church at some point. And here's the deal, four out of five categories, the vast majority of them, I think it's like 80, yeah, 83% are willing to come back to church if someone would invite them. That's all it takes. So when we talk about neighborhood groups mattering, we talk about the front door of our church being your living room, not this room. This is the reason. 
They simply want a friend that cares about them, sees their need in life, and will invite them to be a part of the most important thing, ultimately, in their lives. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to matter how we engage these folks and in these places so the good news, right, that's the good news is that ultimately we need to have a church, a church experience that's meaningful. Above all things, it's got to be meaningful. And what makes it meaningful except the declaration and living out of the gospel truth that sinners really are forgiven by the grace of God and resurrection really is a reality, not just at one point in history, but in your life, that you used to want to do things, but that ended when you come to know Jesus, that's what this is going to take. Not lip service and not attendance. And heaven forbid, don't become self-religious by adding some money on top of that attendance. But let us do it because we see the generosity of God poured out for sinners, wanderers, and rebels. That's you and me. And he brought you in, chose you before the foundation of the world, whether you like it or not. And you'll come to like it if you just believe it. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's, there's no better story than the one that we as Christians get to live in. And everyone else is living in some sort of counterfeit story where they're trying to find eternal life. They're trying to find resurrection. They're trying to find gospel truth. They're trying to find or perform justice on the earth. And the greatest news that we have is that all those things have already been accomplished in Jesus. And what do we do with that news? Well, I don't want to scare them off. I don't want it to get awkward. I really like them, and I don't want them to, like, think I'm a weirdo. Let them think you're a weirdo for the greatest purpose ever. That's at least one of my mottos. It's great. It's working out. So that's where we are, and that's really just the intro, and I apologize already. So let's go to Acts chapter 17, where I think we're going to find, ultimately, a really beautiful model on how to do this. We've preached ad nauseum on the need for missional living, that you are a missionary. You could go back, and every year we talk about this, multiple times a year, about being a missionary, being a witness. Today, I want to give you, like, here's three things that Paul does that will help you deliver a good gospel-centered message to your neighbor, to your coworker to the coach that you coach with, whomever. This is, I think, a really good practical reality here in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read more than I thought, but here we go. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. This is uh, Paul in Athens. He's on a missionary trip. He's getting pushed out of Thessalonica. Uh, there's a mob following him. He goes to Athens for safe uh, space. And ultimately, he's like, while he was waiting, he got busy as a missionary. This is what it says. Now, Paul, while Paul was waiting for them, his, his posse to show up at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of, uh, some, uh, of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You notice how they're obsessed with the resurrection? And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They were Gnostics. They wanted new knowledge. How is it that God works in the world? All the time in the Areopagus, constantly t kicking around modern philosophical and theological thought. We go on. So Paul, I mean, wouldn't you love to have that invitation? I would love to have that invitation. Dude, you tell us more about what you believe. It's just, it's, it's strange to me. That is ultimately not our culture. It's like, oh, you're Christian, cool, be quiet. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens. I don't know why I have to go into this, like, anchorman voice, but men of Athens. Uh, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Oh, he's about to get down. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. Why were you created? That you should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. And yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the, uh, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man, the times of ignorance of God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now check out the response. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined them and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So what can we get out of this when we start thinking about missional living? First and foremost, friends, missional living, if you're going to be a missionary, and by the way, you are, because the Holy Spirit is in you, and he's called you to have power that's witness, missionary. If you're going to be a missionary, if you're going to live missionally, it starts with your heart. It starts with a heart that is provoked in your spirit. That's where it started in verse 16. Now, Paul, while Paul was waiting for the Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. When you look around your city, when you look around your neighborhood, when you look around your house, when you look in your own heart, is your spirit provoked? Is your heart provoked to some sort of emotional response that probably starts with anger but ends in grief? got to end in grief. Grief for our city, for our neighbors, for our co-workers. I mean, when I just read off all those stats, granted, we were a little distracted with the iPad falling, but like, what was your response? Was it just apathy? Or is it a reality here? 40 million people who, who've heard the gospel, 
16% of the American culture, 16% have heard what we have to say and walked away from it. And here's what's on the line. Hell and heaven. Nothing less. Have you forgotten that your friends, your neighbors, your family members, that who do not know Jesus and do not follow Jesus are going to go to hell? Or have we just chalked it up as like, well, they, they just don't believe what I believe. Can I just tell you that's been my confession lately? That I've been around a lot of non-believers, a lot of the same non-believers for years. And I've just chalked it up. I've just gotten to the point where I go, well, they just don't see the world the way I see it. And that's okay. Maybe one day they will, if someone else might proclaim the gospel to them. Someone else? Who's here? Who's now? Isn't that what 26 says? No one else. It's me. See, that's how the early church got going. Everybody understood. See, I might think, man, they're just misguided, and I start to settle into just this idea of like, oh, well, that's just what they believe, and I just got to move on to someone else that might be more fertile ground. No, I've got to work the ground so that God can make this thing grow a bit. It's going to take sacrifice and hard work, but have we forgotten that hell is a real place? You've forgotten that Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem when they were about to kill him, and he wept over that city because he longed for them to come and believe in him, but they would not. They were a city, he called them, known for killing the prophets, and he knew they were about to kill him, and yet he wept because he knew. Do we know? When we proclaim the Lord's death to one another, Do we also then remember that those who don't believe in this beautiful truth will have an eternal death forever? Just to remind you, it's described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know what gnashing of teeth is? I used to think it was like a vampire like hissing at you. I don't think that's it. Gnashing of teeth is, oh, that hurt. You stub your toe or you blow your knee out. Oh, that's the pain. it's, It's literally described as a place of gnashing and weeping of eternal punishment. It's not reward. And it's not neutral. I want us to remember this. Because ultimately, we've got to have a heart that's broken for ourselves that we don't deserve this, much less do our neighbors. And if not for the grace of God, we'd be on the other side of this story totally fine with just living a life that's just making things work without Jesus. Living in a kingdom without the king, ultimately. But friends, do not enter into these places with guns blazing. Paul went in as a listener. He went in with a humble heart, and though he was provoked because of all the idols, he also goes in and he commends them for their belief. He listens to what they're all about, right? In verse 22, he says, I can see that you are very religious. He's listening. He's looking for a place to insert the truth in the midst of their truth. So don't don't enter into these places like maybe generations gone by where we're just going in two guns blazing. That's not going to work. That's going to make a lot of ex-evangelicals who are hurt and will never return. But let us come alongside them long periods of time, loving them, listening to them, inserting the gospel as we can. So I'll ask, 
What is your posture to those around you? Are you inconvenienced with all their needs? I have been. Are you annoyed at maybe their pride or arrogance? Just this last week, boy, I tell you, told a story. I'll tell it again in here in just a second. Annoyed, wondering, am I fearful of how it's going to change my relationship with this person? You do realize that your, your, your relationship with people will be put on the line when you align yourself with Jesus. That you cannot stand in front of people and be ashamed of Jesus without the knowledge that Jesus says, if you do that, I'll be ashamed of you. Like, we're all about grace, but let us also understand the hard sayings of Jesus over time, where he's calling us to take up the responsibility to bring this word, this gospel truth, to someone else. You and I, friends, will never see God move the way he wants to move unless your heart and your spirit is provoked to see the world as he sees them. And you know how he sees them? You know how he sees us? Worthy of the death of his son, and therefore worthy of your death too. Maybe you won't die for this proclamation, but you're going to give something up. That's why it's called a witness, a martyr. You're going, it's going to cost you something in this. So missional living starts with your heart. If your heart is not broken over idolatry and over the reality of non-believers, let it be broken. Plead with the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to give you eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe, not just the Bible, but what the Bible proclaims about humanity, that we are lost and in need of a Savior, a Savior who's come to seek and save the lost. But missional living doesn't stop there, it starts there. It goes on. Missional living, if you're going to proclaim the gospel, which we'll get to, you've got to contextualize the gospel. What do I mean by that? You take the truth, and you find ways to insert it into their truth. You see this in verses 22 and 23, which I'll read again. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. That's an altar they had in their city. Likely they had like 3,000 statues of Greek gods and goddesses in Athens. And yet Paul's walking around, right? He's walking through their idols. He's waiting for his buddies to show up. And he goes, that's, wow, in a city that's known for logic and philosophy and the arts and statues and beauty and democracy. Here's something they don't know. Ha! Got it. I got it. This is the broken part of their story that they acknowledge. They acknowledge this broken part of their story, and he's about to enter into it, which is why he says, oh, you don't know about that God. I got that God. I got him. And he's not going to have an altar built after him. He can't be served. And so he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's basically saying, I'm about to bring new knowledge to y'all. That you thought you knew, but you don't know. The pride of Athens, right, is the birthplace of the Olympics. All these sorts of things. And yet they had an understanding that they did not know everything. That ultimately, they had an idol to an unknown God. And so, friends... 
Do you have idols to unknown gods in your life? See, sometimes it's just the altar of kids' sports. Guilty. Where was I last week? Coaching baseball. It could be an idol if I'm not careful. It could also be a really good mission field. And, and that's the thing. Like it could, This could be a, a dangerous place for Paul unless he enters it with a posture as a missionary. Halloween, we just did. Many people had a, a hard time with this, not necessarily this year, but in our history. Why would Christians enter into such a wicked and evil ho- uh, holiday? Why are we celebrating Satan? Okay, all right, everybody, everybody just calm down. We're not entering into that place celebrating. We're into that place as missionaries. We bring the good news to this place with big candy bars. So they might want to come back and share the good news in relationship. We could, we could avoid these places and, and become really insular. Or we could enter into these spaces that are really uncertain but also really exciting. But there's unknown gods all around us. It could be kids' sports. It could be achievement. It could be control. It could be power. It could be comfort. It could be approval. It could be all sorts of different things, but are we entering into that space, helping then people to say, you may not know this, but I do. This last week, I was having a conversation at softball tournament, had a long lull. I mean, anyways, I'm not going to go on that rant. Um, long lull in between games, and I was talking to somebody there, and um, ultimately was like, hey, you've said today that you're on the wrong side of the religious equation. I want to fix that. How do we fix that? What does that look like? Unknown God. This today I proclaim to you. I'm entering into that space and I'm listening. So I asked questions. And I said, all right, let's just say that God has a standard. Let's just say that you get to the end of your life and you stand before Jesus and he says, why should I let you in? Still a good question. And she says, you mean to tell me that for all the good in my life, in a world that's totally jacked up, she's not using jacked up or any of those languages, she's not a believer. In a world that's totally crazy, and you can see, you, oh God, who know my heart and know my sincerity and know all the things that I've done that I keep in secret as well as the things that, are, that other people know. You know everything about me, all the good I've done, all the justice that I've pursued, and you're still not going to accept me because I don't worship you. That's the one thing I won't do. No thanks. I don't want that, God. And I just sat there, and I went, oh, that came out. That, all that just came out. And I just listened, and I go, okay, you know, This is me contextualizing the gospel. The one time in my life I think I may have done it right. She didn't convert, by the way. She just looked at me and goes, all right, game game time. We should have gotten ready for the game instead of arguing with you. Literally her name, her her words. Like, arguing? I didn't know we were arguing. Oh. But I looked at her and I said, you know what? You are a pretty good person. Matter of fact, you're one of the best bad people I know. You're still bad, just like me. Because your goodness has to be better, not than me, not of your neighbor. Your goodness has to be better than Jesus. Is it better than Jesus? And that's where the conversation ended, conveniently. But here's the deal, right? We've got to go into these spaces, listen for their gospel, which is probably false, especially if they're non-believers. There's a false measure of gospel in there. Enter into that space, contextualize it. You're the best bad person I know, but you're still not good enough. And now we got to correct what's going on, right? That you contextualize this, that you enter into their space, and ultimately you invite them into a better story. But we go on. It starts with a broken heart. It contextualizes the gospel. And now we know that missional living is impossible without proclamation. 
Friends, there is a great lie that every trip that a church group goes on is a mission trip just because the church went there. That every service project that we do must be a mission service project just because the church went there and helped out to Pelchin or everywhere or anywhere we go. Or that you can somehow preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. That's like on t-shirts that probably most of us own, or at one, at one time we owned. Except, dude never said it. Instead, the church out of town doesn't become a mission trip. It's only a construction trip or a VBS trip until someone opens their mouth and proclaims the gospel. You and I, if we're going to be missional, actually have to open our mouth to proclaim the good news that Jesus has come to die for sinners. The service project over at DePelchin loses its power and its Christian distinctiveness until someone opens their mouth and proclaims the good news of Jesus. And in fact, St. Francis of Assisi never said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. He did say, let all the brothers, however, preach by their deeds. In other words, let your deeds line up with your gospel message and vice versa. Paul went into Athens and he boldly proclaimed the truth about their gods and about his God. And if you just follow me here, please do as we end, because it, this is where the, the beauty is. You want to know how to do this? You want to know how to, how to approach your neighbors who are, who, are, who are lost and totally fine being lost for now? He commended them for religious belief. 22. He critiqued their view of the unknown God, 23. He corrected their worship practices in 24 through 28. I haven't read that yet, so I'm going to read it. The God who made the world and everything in it. You can't make an altar to God. God created everything. Being Lord of heaven and earth. Look at all that he made. This old place is the place that we worship in. He doesn't live in a temple made by hand. No, 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 no. You can't try to remake God into your own image. He has created you in his image. Verse 25, it goes on to say, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everything to all mankind, life, breath, and everything in it. Ultimately, what he's saying is the gospel of good works is a farce. You can't do anything for him. He doesn't need to be served. He lacks nothing. He goes on in verse 26 and 27 to basically say, like, you're here for a reason. You're hearing the message in your language for a reason. And friends, Christians, you also have been given this responsibility for a reason. Bring it to our neighbors with beauty and truth and grace. And of course, he goes on, right? That God has got this good and beautiful plan in verses 26 and 27. i got to read it. And he made from one man every nation mankind uh, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they would seek God and hope that they might find their way to them. But his message does not end. I think this is where we fall short most times than not as Christians. We go to our neighbors, we love them practically, we give them cookies when they move in or a baby shower or whatever it may be, um, and yet we get to the point where we start to kind of share how good Jesus is in our own lives and we stop there. But Paul does not stop there. 
he who used to murder Christians, who has been made new by the grace of Christ, now enters into his space, and he calls them to something that we might not call our neighbors to, and that is to repentance. That you would change your mind about who you think God is. You change your mind about who you think you are. You're the best bad person I know. And you change your mind about what you think God came to do, not to condemn you, not to push you out, but to save you and to bring you in. And yeah, it's going to challenge your worldview. It's God. Of course he's going to challenge you. But more than anything, he's going to bring you close, encourage you. But the call to be missional must end with a call to repentance. It's got to end when we say, look, the time is coming for judgment, verse 30. The time of ignorance of ignorance, uh, the times of ignorance, God overlooked. Your unknown God altar, he's not going to overlook that forever. He's coming now and he sees everything, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to come to belief in him. Why? Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by the raising him from the dead. Everybody loves Jesus until we start to understand that Jesus will be your judge. I remember doing a funeral for a guy that I met at Starbucks. His name was Scott. And uh, he and I disagreed on everything. Politics, abortion, um, uh, homosexuals, uh, LGBTQ, the mar- you know, gay marriage, all of it. We disagreed on everything. And you know who was here on the first day that we launched the Grove? Scott. Because we had all those conversations in love and respect for one another. And he died one day running an errand for his wife. God took his life, ran through a stop sign, hit the brick wall in his neighborhood. And his wife called me and said, no one else, he would rather have no one else do his funeral than you. And I was like, what an honor. This man did not believe in Jesus. man was agnostic at best, atheist at worst probably categorized in one of those areas where he used to go to church, believed some things about Jesus, but the church really has let him down over the years. And when I did his funeral, I can't tell you how many people came to me because they didn't realize that he was in a relationship with a pastor that was challenging him on things. Four or five, six people came to me before I preached that funeral. They go, hey, where's Scott? Where's Scott? Where do you think Scott is? You've been having these conversations with him. Where, where do you think happened? You know what my answer was? I have no idea. But one thing I do know is that the one person that judged Scott is the right person. And it's not me, it's not you, it's not even Scott. Because the one person that will judge him in all righteousness, complete perfection, is Jesus. Who else would you want to be judging your soul? than the one who sees you perfectly through every farce and motive and sees it from a perfect perspective and yet to judge you righteously and in beauty and in grace, but with justice. I can't tell you where Scott is, but I do know the best person ever judged him. And we can trust that judgment as just and perfect and righteous. And that's where we can end. 
to call people to continue to believe in a just and beautiful and good and true God who didn't just leave us in this situation worshiping idols that we don't even know their names. Well, I think there's a God out there somewhere, but I don't know. Oh, you can know. His name is Jesus. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, me, to the Father except through me. It's still true today. No matter what the church atmosphere is or our cultural atmosphere is, this is the true gospel message that he loves you deeply. And he calls you to repent. Give up your old ways. They're not giving you what you want anyways. Come to the author of life who gave you everything and receive life that truly leads to life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, are we bored with this gospel message? Are we provoked? Are we listening to the hurt and the harm in our neighbors? Can we find bridges to cross? Or have we burned them over silly things? Lord, I'm grateful that you brought a missionary to my door, doorstep. All of us who call upon the name of the Lord for Savior, as Savior and as Lord, we all should just, just pause for a moment and thank you, Lord, for the many people that brought the gospel to a rebellious, prideful, arrogant young man. And whatever your story is, And they didn't just tell me one time, they told me multiple times. And though I didn't want to hear it, and I tried to shut them down, your spirit compelled them by the truth to continue to share with me the good news. I pray that for all of us who have been shut down and shut out, we would continue to pray. Best gospel work we can do is pray for our neighbors. Pray that we get on that website, Bless Every Home, that we would pray for our neighbors, for the gospel to take root, and that we would ultimately live a life that matters. No amount of money or achievement will do. This is the only thing ultimately that gives us a hope and a life, and that it's be wrapped up in the story of your son Jesus. Thank you for inviting us in. Thank you for calling us to repent. Thank you for the good news of repentance. We don't have it all together, but you do. And you're willing to give that righteousness to us if we would receive it. So for all of us that have received, we're grateful for all, all of us that have not. We pray, Lord, that you by your spirit would open up hearts to believe. At least be curious. And help us. Help deepen our faith. and deepen our dependence on you that we might be sent in honor and in glory of your son Jesus, amen.